The first question is actually for you, Pastor Tony. If when we're saved, God forgives all our sins, do we need to confess our sins to God anymore? So if we get saved and God forgives them all, what is the need for continually confessing or is that necessary? All right, so this, this is a great question because it almost sounds like we're contradicting ourselves when we say he forgave our sins past, present, and future, and then we get saved and we accept Jesus Christ as a personal Savior, and then you mess up and they say, well, you need to ask God to forgive you, and you're thinking, wait a minute, past, present, future, it's done, I don't need to. So we need to understand the concept of this. So if you were part of this study, we made the, the majority of that study that we did on this about our relationship with God. And so that is for, uh, important for us to understand. The debt of sin is paid in full. So it's not a matter of having to go back and repay for our sins. But the effects of sin still hurts our relationship with God. And we, if you guys remember, we went to John 3 and we were talking about this, that, you know, you must be born again. What does born again mean? That you're born into the family of God. And so it's a relationship. It's, it's like when you're married, you have a commitment between you and your spouse. It's like, well, I'll, uh, you know, for better, for worse, till death do us part. Okay, so we've got that union, just like we have that relationship with God. But after we're married or after we're saved, we mess up. So the thing is, we go back to God not to fix our salvation, not, not to ask forgiveness of our sins because of the fact is that sin now is going to send us to hell. It's because it hurts our relationship. So confessing our sins we mess up is keeping things right between us and God because sin does two things. Sin hurts us. And sin hurts our relationship with God. If you remember, sin is what uh, separates us from God. It's, uh, th- that's why even illustrations in the Bible, when, when God was uh, talking to Moses, he said, take off your shoes for the place that you're standing is holy ground. We're, we're to walk before God righteously. We're to go before God with clean, heart, clean hands and a pure heart. And so uh, when, when we love someone and we mess things up, we go to make things right between us and our relationship with God. So if you want to write down a reference to this, and we kind of talked through this a little bit, but, but we'll fill in the blanks with case okay, 1-7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with the other. So the light is righteousness, the light of God's word, illuminating what is wrong. Okay, so if we have that, we have fellowship. So keep that in mind. What is this all about? It's not about losing my salvation. It's about fellowship. If, if you get into an argument with your spouse, you don't have fellowship with your wife. There, things are not right. So what you do is you go back to make the relationship right. So it says, uh, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It doesn't take away our salvation, but the Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What it does is it makes the relationship right. It's not a matter of losing your salvation. So when we mess up in life, and it's a daily thing or whatever, and I'm, I'm walking in sin or I mess up in the things of my life, I'm, I'm confessing it to God to repent of it. Remember, that was one of the steps that we talked about, repent. I'm going to turn from that. I'm not going to just keep doing it. And if you remember the illustration we gave that night, I went over and kept punching uh, Brother Fenwick and said, I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry for it. But re- saying I'm sorry literally is not enough. Repenting literally means I'm going to change and do something different. I'm sorry for that. And so God wants things to be right between us and God. So that's what that is about. Question number two. Asked if it was possible for him to pass the cup from him. Okay, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, we'll start in verse 36, and we'll read the passage that the question is asking. So 
Matthew 26, verse 36, the Bible says, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And he went a little further, and fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. So the question is asking, this is a little confusing. I don't understand here. Um, if Jesus is God, why is Jesus praying to God the Father? So here's my answer, and I'll explain this uh, using some scripture verses here. Uh, the setting here is definitely Jesus uh, preparing for taking on our sin, uh, sacrificing himself on the cross, right? He's, he's here. He's about to make that sacrifice. The short answer is, who's he talking to? He is talking to God the Father. Uh, but it's, it's confusing a little bit because so we think if so if he's talking to God the Father and Jesus is God in the flesh, was he talking to himself? And the answer is yes, sort of. No, not really. So uh, let me explain this. Yeah. Uh, so this is really a question about the Trinity. Um, or the trifecta, as you guys had on your paper if you marked it wrong. Um, the Trinity is a concept. It's, it's a concept supported by Scripture verses that is so clear in the Bible, but the Word itself is not in the Bible. And uh, the Trinity is something that humans really have a hard time grasping, and that's why we ask questions about it. So the, the, really the question here is, how can we understand everything about an infinite God when we are simply humans and we can't understand? So, uh, but here's a few reminders that would help you maybe navigate this, these questions about the Trinity. Uh, the first thing is, if you're taking notes, is there is only one God in three distinct persons. That's how we would uh, explain the Trinity. In Deuteronomy 6.4, great reference first, Deuteronomy 6.4, the Bible says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. All through Scripture, uh, God is, we're, we're not, um, I believe the term is polytheist. We don't, we don't believe in multiple gods. We don't worship multiple gods. We worship one God. Uh, when we speak to Jesus, when we even pray to the Holy Spirit, if you, if, however you're addressing God, just realize you're addressing just one. There is only one, but that God all through Scripture is represented in three distinct persons. In Matthew 28, verse 19, we have our commission. We have our great commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So there's only one God in three distinct persons. But the second thing to remember is this. The Trinity is perfectly unified. Uh, I, I want to express that because there's a, there's a distinction, but the Bible is clear. They are one and the same. They are, they are unified. You say, how can you be three yet one? Listen, it's this God we're talking about here, right? We're not, 
I'm sorry if I can't give a great explanation, but the Bible does say, and it's supported so clearly in John 10.30, even Jesus speaking, he says, I and my Father are one. One is one. That's John 10.30. In John 1, verses 1 through 3, there's this explanation, this uh, clear telling about Jesus and his relationship to God and how, how this all works with the Trinity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, was with God, sorry, and the Word was God. So you've got the Word in the beginning, not only with God, but also being God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Later on in the passage, it says, and the Word, the one that was with God and was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, who's that? That's Jesus. So the Bible is clear. There's only one God, three distinct persons. The Trinity is perfectly unified. So my recap is simply this. Jesus was showing his humanity as God in the flesh. Uh, He was seemingly speaking to himself, yet in some distinct way was speaking to God the Father. And yes, at the same time, they are one in the same. Third question, this one, uh, another really good question. Even though the original scriptures came from God and were inspired by God, the Bible has been revised with many different versions throughout history. Would this process also be considered inspiration? So the reason that that's a really good question is because a very common um, objection that is brought up when it comes to the reliability and accuracy of the Bible is the original writings were produced over 2,000 plus years ago. They were written in ancient languages, and we don't have any of those original writings. And so some of the uh, arguments that are sometimes made is, sure, like, even if we want to concede what the Scriptures declare of themselves, which is what? All Scripture, all written word Scripture, is given by inspiration of God. So the Holy Spirit moved men, moved human authors to write certain words. So even if we want to concede that that happened, the Bible, uh, those original writings were then copied, and then those copies were copied, and that eventually they were translated from those original languages into other languages. And so the argument is, even if God inspired his word, even if the Holy Spirit supernaturally worked, how can we be confident that when we open up our Bible and read in English, that we're reading God's words? And the answer to that is, well, there's two parts to this question. So the heart of the question is, God must have to be, is he inspiring again and again? Is that how we reconcile what seems to be a problem? And the answer to that is no. God inspired his word. He worked in and through human beings to produce written words, and he did that one time. Right? When the original writings were written, that was when inspiration took place. And when that happened... And from that moment until now, what we have seen and continue to see is the faithfulness and providence of God to oversee a work of preservation so that we can be confident when we open up our Bible and read in English, we are reading God's words. One of the things that we talked about when we had our lesson on the Bible and its origin and inspiration is we talked about the overwhelming amount of evidence that exists that gives us confidence in the Bible. Now, I said something then that I wanted to make sure to say again tonight. 
I know some of the most faithful, godly, loving Christians that I've ever known and have any idea about any manuscripts, any idea about any overwhelming number of manuscripts that exist that corroborate the accuracy of Scripture. They just, they know God's Word, and God's Word has changed their lives. The gospel has changed their lives. The faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And if you have heard the gospel and believed in the gospel, right, all of this is extra. But one of the things that's so amazing about that is we don't have to, we don't have to help God out here, right? He, his Holy Spirit worked. It produced written words, and those written words have endured. They've pre- they're preserved so that we open up our Bibles and read. What we're reading is God's words. We can be confident in that. Any copying that was done, any, you say, well, what about, I mean, if you know something about the history of the Bible or the English Bible, great characters in history like John Wycliffe. Did God in, work inspiration through him? No. God used him as part of a work of preservation. God used him in, in an act of goodness and faithfulness to us to continue to, in, to see the endurance of the written word. The inspiration happened once. God's words were inspired. They came from him. The written words of scripture came from him. And he has overseen in his faithfulness and goodness to us their preservation. So when you open up your Bible, I don't have to, we want to try to fill in the gaps. And we talked about this when we had our lesson. The story is not an easy story, right? There are challenges. But when we read and when we study and as we get into it, what we see from history is God's faithfulness to us, his goodness to us. So that we can be confident that when we open up the Bible and read the Bible, we're reading God's words. His words were inspired, inspired once, preserved faithfully throughout the centuries. Um, If you look at it, the reason why this is such a debate, if we were to go back to uh, the King James, and it's translated from the Texas Receptus, and uh, a lot of people took older manuscripts that they thought were older, that therefore more reliable and that's where it comes down to when we talk about the Texas Receptus, we're talking about the majority text. How many have ever heard those terms, majority text, okay, versus the minority text and stuff, which is a, which is a fascinating study in of itself. So really when we get into talking about the preservation of Scripture, which was what Pastor Matt was talking about, he was talking about God keeping his hands for every generation what God has promised to, and then we would have them translated into the languages to that. So today, there's, there's Bibles being written in other languages all over the world. Every single day, they're translating that into other languages that people could understand. So when God was talking about keeping his hands on it, he was talking about his original work so that every generation could have the source of that for it to be translated into their language. Is it true that there's lots of things out there today that is just moneymakers? Satan's going to put his hand in everything. But that doesn't discredit the fact that God said, and he made a promise that his word would endure for every generation, for sure. That was his promise. I'm going to get a controversial one. Are you guys ready for this? Because this is one everybody's had the question about. So the question is this, do babies go to heaven? Is there such a thing as the age of accountability? Okay, this is a big one. I wish I could take you to a verse and just say, all babies go to heaven. Okay, that would be... The easiest thing possible. So I'm going to just drop you some principles because I know I'm looking at the time. Uh, this is so fun to get into. We're on question four. Uh, so I, I, I'm going to try to just tap this out of the head and go uh, into this. Uh, we know from Scripture that all of us are born into sin. Okay, just that's the way that it is. No baby is born sinless. Okay, so the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
Uh, the Bible says, Behold, I was shaped in iniquity and sinned, my mother conceived me. It doesn't say her act was sinful, but in sin, because sin passed upon all men. So even babies are born in sin. But then we get into the question, babies and small children do not know the difference between good and evil. That's not me just saying that. It's in the scriptures. So take your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39. And I, I want to just teach you some principles that, which is based uh, that the fact of what we say that we believe these things and where it's based on. The Bible states that uh, even children that have a sin nature at the youngest years uh, do not have an understanding of right and wrong. They just don't. Uh, your, your, your toddler is, you know, they're, they're learning these things, but they don't have this moral conscience to help them understand. They develop it. So the perfect illustration that we have in Deuteronomy 139, it's when God was forbidding the generations to go into the promised land. But he let the younger generation, if I'm remembering right, it was 20 and under. Is that correct? It was, I think, the age 20 and under. It says, moreover, your little ones, which he said should be prey, and your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, they shall go in thither, and unto them will I give it, and they shall possess it. I'm not saying that's a rock-solid-like answer. I just proved my point. But I'm going to say that God gave us scriptures to prove that he understands that there's an age that people do not understand right from wrong. That's not my words, that's God's word. He said it again in Isaiah 7, 16, for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good. He said that. He said there's a time that the child would not know to refuse the evil and receive the good. Again, God's making distinction of children who has not yet reached an age where they shall know to refuse evil or to choose good. Um, the, the idea or the, the, the terminology with this is the age of accountability. Of what age is that where somebody comes to a, a moral decision of understanding to accept Jesus Christ or reject Re Jesus Christ or to know what's right and wrong? Uh, the, the age of, is, is not specified in any in Scripture, even in this, uh, in these passages. Uh, because I think part of that is because children mature at different ages. Uh, if if you're, you're a parent, you know what I'm saying. It's different. And then you also take a child that is mentally handicapped or, or in those type of situations that they, they never get beyond the, uh, the ability to think past like the age of a five or six-year-old or whatever the case might be. Jesus uh, taught one time, and I'm just taking pieces together and kind of putting this puzzle together, if you guys will. Uh, when he was talking about letting the children come unto him in, in Matthew 18, Verse 3, he said, Verily I say, except you be converted and become as a little child or a little children. So he even used them as illustration of the innocence of, and in another passage, he talks about the faith of a child, but in this passage, he's talking about you become like a little child. So let me give you the best evidence that we have in Scripture to do this. When King David, which was called by God, that was a man after God's own heart, that wrote the inspiration of Scripture, that nothing made it in the Bible that God did not want to be in there. You can't look in there and say, well, it was said that, that, but that's probably not right. No, if it was wrong, it would never make it in the Bible. That's why it's inspired and God breathed. Uh, but when David was losing his child, you know, the story of David and Bathsheba and everything that went on with that, he says, but he is now dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. Uh, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And right there, David is acknowledging that his child that died went to heaven. He could not bring him back to him, but he could go to him. And so 
Uh, those are the principles that we know. If you're to do a search on this, if you're to do any kind of Bible study, and I've done this multiple times, I've done this for the sake of teaching. I've done this for the sake of counseling with people that have lost kids, uh, miscarriages and things like that. They ask that, that when the whole abortion thing, are we just sending people straight to hell with abortion and things like that? So this is a very sensitive topic. And I'm not saying that I just gave you a verse and knocked it out of the park with that, but I'm giving you principles that we collectively bring together to come to this conclusion. So, and I'm sure even with that, there's probably questions in the back of our mind. Uh, okay, if they haven't confessed their sin, how are they saved? And all we can do is we don't know the mind of God, and I do understand grace. And it's somewhere with that. This next question is about the Holy Spirit. If the filling of the Holy Spirit is not a one-time thing, but happens many times over the life of a believer, how can I know when I am filled with the Holy Spirit? Has anyone ever been confused about filling or indwelling and all these terms with the Holy Spirit? Raise your hand. Let's all look around. Okay, there are many others. These are, these are hard questions and a little confusing, and sometimes it's because uh, there's only a few verses that use that specific word, right? Um, but the question is, what is this filling, and is it something I need over and over, or is it a one-time thing? So the question is great. Uh, a really good question. Uh, let me explain it this way. When, uh, when is a Christian filled with the Spirit? All right. Um, first, we need to understand what the Bible says about how the Holy Spirit indwells a believer and then when he fills you. So those are two different terms that are really important to know. So it would be the indwelling or the filling. And many times we interchange those that can cause a little cloudiness to the topic is when we interchange those. So we'll look to the scripture verses to really look at that terminology. Um, so let me explain it this way. When it comes to the indwelling, not the filling, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, this is uh, indwell. If you want to write down the definition, it's, it, it means to reside or to live, okay? Indwell, to reside. So when does the Holy Spirit come to reside in you is the question. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit takes place when a person receives salvation through Jesus Christ by faith. When you are saved, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside you. So it was on your test tonight, and you probably got this one right. It's at that regeneration of the Holy Spirit. He, he, uh, he translates you. There's another Bible word. He, he's the one that's placing you into the family of God. That whole inside change that happens, that's his job, okay? That's the Holy Spirit's work, and he changes you. But at the same time he's changing you, you go from death to life. At the same time, he lives inside you, okay? That's the indwelling. Now, the second word here is the filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, let's, let's not think of filling as filling up a water bottle, because we would think of that as the same as indwelling, right? I'm, I'm putting water. It's going to stay inside here. That's not what we're talking about. We're going to use the word control or empowering, okay? So you think indwelling is residing inside of, filling is to control or empower, so let's, let's look at these, uh, where the scripture talks about both topics, uh, and this will help us understand this. So the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, uh, you see that in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, uh, verses 13 and 14. 
The Bible says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So something happens after you've heard the word of truth, the gospel. In whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. After you hear the word of truth, after you hear the gospel, you're saved. That's when the Holy Spirit does his work. He seals you. He, 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 he promises your salvation. Romans 8, 9 says this. Uh, this is my next verse here. Romans 8, 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So there's this thing in the Bible that talks about when you have salvation, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, okay? Um, now let's talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit. That, that verse would be Ephesians 5.18. Ephesians 5.18. This is probably the best illustrated. It's a good picture, uh, good picture language here. Uh, it explains it to us. Ephesians 5.18, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess. That's a, that's a prohibition against getting drunk, okay? Don't be drunk. Don't drink alcohol and let it control you. Don't, don't let it uh, take over your senses and your feelings. But then God gives a contrast in the same verse. Don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be what? Filled with the Spirit. Oh, wait a second. I'm already saved. I'm already filled. No, no. You're already indwelled. But the filling of the Holy Spirit is similar, likened to drinking alcohol in this, in this verse. It's talking about when you drink alcohol, it will control you. It will affect you. It will change you, the way you act, behave, think, and, and continue in life. In the same way, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that's His control or empowering in your life. Acts 4.31 says, And when they had prayed... The place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. Let me, let me wrap it up with a couple things here. We've got the filling, we've got the indwelling. You are indwelled by the Holy Spirit at the time of salvation, right? He lives within you. you your body is his temple. That's in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, right? Uh, 6, 19. So how do you know, okay, so you know indwelling happens one time at salvation, but how do you know you're filled, right? Am, am, I, am I filled? Are you filled right now? Are you filled with the Spirit? How do you know? And here's, here's the simple way. It's, it's a matter of the works of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit. So God gives you clear evidences. He writes it out in a list. He says, if you see these things in your life, you can rest assured you're walking in your own flesh. You are controlled by your own feelings, emotions, desires. That's in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. They appear. They appear in your life, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, 
emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies. This is a long list. Envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. So I challenge you to go back and write out that list and get a dictionary out because I'm not going to define them all for you tonight, and define those. And it says, and such like, things like those. And if those things are showing up in your life, you can rest assured you're not filled with the Spirit at that time. But the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians 5, and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, Goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. You say, how, how do I know if I'm filled with the Spirit? When you're filled with the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is going to be showing up in your life. You'll know it because you'll be able to love people that you couldn't love before. You may be able to express forgiveness to somebody that you couldn't forgive before. You may have this, uh, feel this supernatural help to have patience where, in other words, you could get really angry and, and, you know, grow in your hatred or bitterness, right? The fruit of the Spirit, that when the Holy Spirit is filling you, He is controlling you, your emotions and your, your not only, it's not only a feeling, but it's your actions as well. Here's my recap, my, my answer to this whole thing. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you at salvation. Then we must surrender and ask for the Holy Spirit to fill us. You know you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know you are filled when the Holy Spirit is working in you to obey Scripture and live like Jesus beyond what you're normally capable of doing in your own strength. When we were talking about this um, earlier, um, one of the things that we may underappreciate about this is I think sometimes we think of the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's like, man, if... If I get filled with the Spirit maybe three or four times in my life, well, like, what a wonderful thing. We think of the filling of the Spirit as a very, very special event. But when we read the Scriptures and we see the way that the Holy Spirit manifests in the life of the believer, if you've had boldness to witness in a moment that you didn't think you'd have boldness, you were filled with the Spirit. You know, if you were able to forgive, like Pastor Chris said, in a way that you otherwise wouldn't have been able to, you've been filled with the Spirit. And so I think it's, I think it's not thinking about the filling of the Spirit as a, this, this really, really remarkable thing, this thing that we very rarely see in our life, and recognizing that as we yield to the Holy Spirit, He fills us. Is it okay for Christians to observe communion in their home and not in the context of the local church? So when we talked about the two ordinances, which are practices that Jesus gave to us as believers. He instructed us to continue to practice after his uh, earthly life and ministry. When we talked about both baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion, what we said when we answered this, uh, these kinds of questions was that we said that having given both practices, not just to believers, but specifically to the local church, the mechanism, the the organism that he's using to carry out his work in the world. What we offered up as an answer to these uh, questions was uh, the ideal situation is that these practices would take place within the context of the church. We talked about when Paul gave uh, his instructions in Corinthians, it was Paul that implored the believers. He said, we want to do things decently and in order. And so we want to take the ordinances seriously. We want to take communion seriously and the Lord's table ser- uh, and baptism seriously. It's not a free-for-all. 
And so within the context of the church is important. But what we also said was that there is no explicit prohibition in Scripture in this way. Right? So while it is ideal and helpful and edifying, especially with communion, we talked about how communion is to be this picture of the unity of the body of Christ. That's the context of 1 Corinthians 11, the unity of the body of Christ. And so what a wonderful, beautiful thing it is. We got to observe communion together as a church on Sunday. And uh, Garrett, my son, he observed communion for the first time um, on Sunday. And other than trying to, um, we got to the point where we were going to, um, you know, drink the juice. And he was like, cheers, dad. Um, we had a, we had a conversation after about that, but, um, but it was an awesome opportunity for him to see the unity of the body of Christ, to see brothers and sisters coming together around the Lord's table to remember his uh, sacrifice, his broken body, his shed blood for us. And so is there a prohibition in scripture? Um, when me and Pastor Tony were talking about this, uh, offered up, even in my own ministry, uh, opportunities where you go to somebody, they can't come to church, right? And you sit down with them in their home and you observe the table together. Or you have a small group of, of believers, like we have life groups here. And you say, you know, we're going to remember the sacrifice of our Savior together. We're going to take it seriously. We're not, we're not going to um, take it lightly. There's no prohibition in Scripture in that. And so the answer to the question is, it's okay for God's people to observe the Lord's table together. What is best, what works, what functions well, what is great for the edifying of the body is that when it happens together in the local church, in a public gathering of the local church, that's most effective. Um, but there is no prohibition in Scripture outside of that. We just have to be very careful because these things are important. Baptism is important. The Lord's table is important. So we have to be really careful that we're honoring those things in these ways. We got asked the question, will we remember our lives and relationships when we are in heaven? And uh, this, is, this is a big one because, again, when I counsel with people that have lost somebody, uh, this question comes up, and this is a big one. Um, taking some principles, and I'm going to give you some verses too. From the very beginning, before the fall of man, we were built and established and created by God for relationships. So keep that in mind. Uh, to know each other, to fellowship, to share life together, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve with God. That's how they walked in the cool of the day. Uh, it was based on relationships. So uh, when we get into past the sin and, and, and understanding what's going on now, we can see glimpses to the other side of people that were in their glorified body. Uh, if you do take Jesus when he went up on the mountain of transfigura transfiguration, um, in Matthew 17, 3 and 4, they recognized Moses and Elijah. They were distinct people. They knew who they were. It wasn't a matter of them, there's two shiny people or whatever up there. It was, it was a matter of they knew who they were. They were recognizable. They had their names. Uh, even though they had departed from this world before this, Moses and Elijah remained distinct people that had not lost their identity, even though that they were in their glorified bodies. Uh, the same thing in Luke 16, 19 through 31, with Abraham and Lazarus and the rich man and the story there. Uh, names are recognized. They, they knew who they were. Uh, so we have that glimpse of that. When Jesus was in his glorified body, that's a good one right there. Uh, and, and he was back with them, and he said that he talked about being different. He walked through walls. He appeared unto them. But the flip side of it is he sat down and ate with them. He was recognized by them. He even had the scars in his hands symbolizing what had happened before on the cross. He said, see, you can see my hands. But they knew him, and they, they recognized Jesus for who he was. Now, he was different even in the garden when he was with Mary. She thought that he was a gardener. And I, I don't think that's just because he looked different, because 
uh, I, because she was shocked to see him, and, and he was in that, and, and uh, uh, appeared to him in a way that she wasn't expecting it. So that we've got that too. Uh, but Jesus knew who they were. So the glorified body uh, that Jesus had when he appeared unto them uh, had the scars in his hands, but they recognized them. And that's one of the most distinguishable things that we have in Scripture of recognizing beyond the grave of, of relationships and what we remember. But the Bible says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not appear yet what we shall be, but we, uh, but we know that when we shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so when we get to heaven, the Bible does say that God wipes away the tears from our eyes. He wipes away the pain and all those things from them. But I know that we're going to recognize what we've done, what we've done in heaven on here on earth, because the fact is we get rewarded for those things. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. We're not going to stand there and go, what? What did we do? You know, it's like, no, well done. You finished the course. You've uh, kept the faith. And then we get the rewards and we cast them at the feet of Jesus. So lots of things in scripture tell us that we will know people in heaven and we will remember who we are and what we've done in, in those things because we were built for relationships and God has proven that through scripture from the very beginning of all the way to Adam all the way to the end of Revelation. This last one, uh, if baptism does not save us, what does 1 Peter 3.21 mean? Um, so if you have your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll tackle this last one. Verse number 21. We'll start with reading verse 21. We'll see where the confusion comes in, and then we'll answer this question. The Bible says, the like figure, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what are we supposed to do with that? Um, first and foremost, we want to make it abundantly clear that the scriptures are clear that salvation is by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, plus nothing and minus nothing, right? There is no, this is a challenging verse, but the teaching of scripture could not be any more crystal clear. In fact, Peter, if you went back to chapter number one of 1 Peter, and you started reading in verse three, he says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God, how? Through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. See, P Peter has not, Peter starts things off in his letter and leaves nothing to uh, question. We are saved because of the mercy and grace of God. And it's through faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us because of his grace that we are saved, that we are forgiven. So when we go back to chapter number three and we read verse number 21, it's important as in, as in, as in wherever you're at in scripture, the context is important. And even when we read verse 21, we know that we need to get more because what does it say? The like figure... Peter has been making a point up until now. And so when we back up a little bit and we start in verse number 17, I'm going to read you a few of these verses. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, 
by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor Matt, after reading that, it's worse for me. Like, I'm more, I'm more confused, right? But the point that Peter is trying to make here is he has just offered an admonition to the believers in character and conduct. If you read verse 1 of chapter 3 to verse 16, and what he is really at the heart of Peter's letter is to encourage them to continue on in the face of persecution. He said, you're going through trial and tribulation because of your faith, and you need to continue on in that. And he uses an illustration. He says, Jesus suffered for us, right? The just for the unjust. He said, it's better for you to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil, right? So he makes this contrast. And then he turns his attention to the, the distinction between those of us who have believed and had our consciences purified by the work of the Holy Spirit and those that don't. And he said, do you remember the story of Noah? He said, there were those who didn't believe and they were judged. And then there were those eight souls, Noah and his family, they were saved. And when you read the example that he gives, and he talks about being saved by water, we have to understand at the end of verse number 20, this, this, this helps us understand verse 21. They were saved by water. In other words, Noah and his family made it through the water. They went through the water. Right? Because as much as we would like to just say, well, verse 21 is not talking about water baptism. We're pretty sure it's talking about water baptism. right? But when you use the illustration of Noah, was it the water that literally saved their lives? No, they, they were saved by water, through the water. What carried them through the water? The ark. The ark was prepared for them. In the same way, Peter says, when you and I get baptized, it's not the putting away of the felt. It's not that physical water. He said they were carried through the water because of the ark. They were carried through the water. They were saved because of God's goodness and faithfulness. And that's the same thing it is with us. We can go down into the water. What carries us through? What takes us where we need to go? Not the cleaning of the filth of the flesh. He said, but the, the answering of a good conscience toward God. How? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's where the power comes in. And he's like, when you get baptized, when we identify with Christ in this way, we are identifying with the power of the resurrection because that's where the salvation comes from. So when Peter uses this example, he's already made it clear salvation is by grace through faith alone in Jesus. But he uses this example to help us understand how important baptism is and how it's the work of God in us and through us. That's where salvation comes from.